Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am joined by, in Washington, D.C., Rosa Brooks. Uh, recently returned from Amsterdam. We want to hear about that. And in California, we have Emily Brandwin, uh, the host of Washington for Beautiful People, our deep state podcast, which you got to go listen to, uh, and which, by the way, got great followership in its very first week. And in Miami, Florida, um, we have Katie Fang, an attorney and former prosecutor. And we are also joined on this episode by Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who is alone among us. Oh, no, I guess now, Rosa, you're back in Washington. But Ed is also in Washington. So, Rosa, before but, but, we get into Ed all is, of this. Ed is always alone among us. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, a sort no, of that's... metaphysical existential truth about all of us, David. I'm going to take that as a, as a half-glass-full metaphysical <laughs> observation. We're all alone in a crowd. Wow. <laughs> this sounds really... you. That's what I learned in Amsterdam. Well, that's what I wanted to know. How was Amsterdam? Uh, Amsterdam was very Dutch. There were a lot of bicycles <laughs> and canals. <laughs> and and did you did you meet the king? I did meet the king. I met the king, I met the queen, and I met the princess who is actually what the Brits would call the queen mum. Did you split the bill? Uh, no, I, I, I demanded that the king pay for everything. Um, and did your mother embarrass you publicly? Well, my mom was awesome. Uh, she gave a great speech. There was a certain irony about having my mother give a speech. Uh, you know, my mother give a sort of anti-hierarchy, anti-elite speech in front of the king and the queen at the royal palace. But, you know, um, <laughs> that's the way it goes. That's a- that's how these things go. Um, but but on the other hand, it's further sign. All you have to do is sort of get to Holland and move north. And they seem to have figured out government and philosophy a little better than the rest of us have. Yes, um, yes. Uh, and lots of Dutch people were confused about Donald Trump. And I said we were also confused about Donald Trump. Yeah, well, it, 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 is, it is confusing. And I, I think one of the things we want to you know, talk about a little bit here just because of the the nature of the week. And I don't want to bring the conversation down, but I think it connects to everything else is, of course, the week is dominated um, also by the uh, uh, lying in state and later uh, the funeral services for George H.W. Bush, who was the 41st president of the United States. Um, And one of the things that has struck me is the um, juxtaposition between the reaction to Bush uh, and the behavior of the president, 
which echoes, of course, what happened uh, not too long ago with with John McCain. Um, and, you know, George Bush was not a perfect man, nor was he a perfect president. And there's plenty uh, to take issue with in the life of a man politically or from a policy perspective. Um, but everybody who knew him uh, and worked with him uh, not only finds something in his service to uh, admire, but but above that, his character to admire. And I've just been listening to stories every day, all day long about George Bush and his kindness or George Bush and his commitment to public service or George Bush and his ethical values. And they're filling a whole week of it. And I was thinking, Rosa, that if Donald Trump were to die, they would have trouble filling four minutes, much less four days with this kind of commentary. Um, uh, And now, you know, apparently, I mean, this podcast will air for most people after the funeral ceremony at the National uh, cathedral, but um, uh, the, the Trump isn't even speaking at that. Uh, well, it, no it, one wants to let him speak at that, right? And I think this is, a, you know, this is a very interesting thing. Is his week comes from being at the G twenty, where he was isolated from, you know, that all of America's allies effectively. He was a pariah at the meeting, sort of standing, yeah, staring off is- into space. Come on, he's waiting for the great leap forward. Yeah, no, he did make a great leap forward comment, which revealed that he doesn't know what the great leap forward is. Um, and and then, you know, now he's now he's gotten home, and he's being isolated from America's leadership as well. I, I've never seen it. This guy is a pariah. He should be the most, you know, sort of the hub of activity, and and yet nobody wants to touch him. I, well, you know, this this just, is true. I'm, I'm actually, David, you put into my mind uh, by raising the question of how long would a, would a Trump epitaph be and what would people say? Uh, of course, it would be very short if he had to be praised by U.S. officials. But I'm trying to imagine now what if what if uh, uh, Duterte, Rodrigo Duterte or Victor Orban wrote Trump's epitaph? They would come up with lots of things to say in his praise, I'm sure. So it all depends on your perspective. If we ask the uh, uh, the world's authoritarian killers to write the epitaph, it would be it would be long and effusive. It might be, although the Russian media has turned on Trump and said, um, you know, nasty things about him. The Chinese have turned on him. Um, I, I even even in those cases, because of the timing of the Cohen um, revelations. Trump really couldn't meet with the people that would have met with him, like Putin. And then, of course, MBS was a little bit toxic even for Trump. Um, Eddie's the loneliest man in the world. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh I thought I was the loneliest man in the world um, as a met- <laughs> metaphysical but, but, but solitary Ed, Ed, condition. Ed, we're lonely together, so that's okay. <laughs> we're lonely together. The loneliness of a crowd. Um, uh, I, I think uh, somebody was quoting the I.F. Sto- I. F. Stone uh, famous quote about funerals are, are always an occasion for pious lying. Um, but in, in Bush's, Bush Senior's case, you know, I really don't think it is. I, I think that these are sort of genuine um, outpourings that, uh, that would have been and have been said about him when he wasn't dead. Um, and that this was... Uh, genuinely a figure 
of high public integrity, um, who lapsed on occasions, most notoriously, um, in how he defeated Dukakis, which, where he did sort of stoop to fairly Trumpian tactics, it should be said. Um, but the man who did it for him, Lee Atwater, who, who died tragically young, um, before he died, gave an interview saying exactly what they did, which was a racial racial dog whistle. Um, so, you know, even in recognizing the extraordinary public virtue of, of um, George H.W. Bush, and I, and I think, you know, as a European, or at least still technically for a few months I, I remain a European that his role in, in um, 1989 and 1990 in allowing Germany to take the credit for the fall of the Berlin Wall and encouraging European integration um, uh, uh, and German unification um, was extraordinary in that if there'd been a different president uh, if there'd been somebody like Trump in charge or, or, or many other presidents, um, for that matter, um, might not have happened. Um, it, it, most presidents would have gone to the Berlin Wall and they would have been crowing on that wall that this is my victory. This is my photo op. Uh, and Bush understood that he didn't want to crowd people out. He wanted to share the credit. And uh, that's just one example of what a, a, a very sensitive statesman um, he was. And I think, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's underappreciated um, uh, around the world because he, he was sort of sandwiched by two much, much more egotistical um, presidents. Trump would have Steve Bannon and others giving lots of eulogies if they could organize an alternative national cathedral in an alternative parallel universe. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you do raise the prospect of a Trump state funeral taking place at a NASCAR track with a bunch of people with <laughs> with, with, with red hats with uh, little black ribbons on them, perhaps, or something like that. Um, but I don't know, it, David. You know, I, 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 I am. I'm not convinced that Trump is going to retain the support of really any significant segment of American society by the time he's done. So I, 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 I think, I think, I think it would be a. It would have to be a very small venue <laughs> for a man with very what? small hands. You mean like, like an, an olive, olive garden? garden? Like an olive garden, maybe? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's no, what I was envisioning. Giving way too much credit for that. You NASCARs. Can, uh, some Olive Gardens are quite large, actually. I, I, you're talking more <laughs> like roadside roadside taco stand, which you're really talking well, about. I, I was just thinking the breadsticks would woo people to come. Mm, that's wow. true. That's salad. true. Because I don't think we could you fill know, a I, NASCAR I have menu. to admit, I've, I've never been to an Olive Garden. I, they I, they have good breadsticks. Yeah, well, I'll try to... I'll All you try can eat breadsticks and salad. I'll try to keep that in mind. You know, um, okay, David, I, I, David, you are revealing yourself as a member of the of the despised elite. Um, the rest yeah, of us I'm are going to go to a NASCAR. The rest of us are going to go to NASCAR and we're going to eat breadsticks and we're going to make fun of you. Look, I've been to car races <laughs> and I've been to Cracker Barrel and I've been to Applebee's and I've been to Target and Walmart, <laughs> you know, a lot of places like that, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. No, no. Okay. doesn't work. Okay. Um, okay. Look, I, I, I do think though that, you know, there is a, you know, there is a broader issue that's hanging in the air as we look at all of this. Um, and it has to do with public service. I, you know, I'm a historian of national security council. I've written a couple books on it. I've written a bunch of articles about it. 
And and the the the, the best functioning White House national security apparatus of the past 70 um, years since it were since it was established was the George H W Bush White House and it it was for a number of reasons including that he had more international and national security experience than any incoming president that we've had uh, probably since Eisenhower having been a former uh, USUN ambassador, head of the CIA, envoy to China, and vice president for eight years. But more importantly, he knew how to manage. Um, by the way, he, he did not think Reagan did. And the Reagan-Bush transition in the White House um, was actually very tense because the Reagan and Bush people did not much like each other. And they let go all the Reagan people and, 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 and largely replaced them. Um, but but it was also because of his management style, where he wanted other people to be heard. He had very strong um, uh, 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 advisors like James Baker and Brent Scowcroft, who were also good friends of his, but who would say no. Uh, and there was this kind of chemistry that worked well because of the man at the top demanded it worked well. Uh, and there was a real collegiality. None of these things exist now. So not only was he dedicated to public service, um, but he was actually good at public service, um, uh, whether you agreed with the ultimate policy outcomes or not. Donald Trump is something else. Another person who's something else is, is Robert Mueller. And we have the president of the United States actually tweeting things out like, <laughs> Mueller isn't the man you think he is. And Katie, wasn't there, isn't there like a crazy right-wing lawsuit against Mueller now accusing him of treason? Yeah, so Jerome Corsi, who we heard a lot about the last few weeks because like one of those bit players in a really black comedy, you know, in a really dark comedy, you kind of um, have this Jerome Corsi guy who we know is a birther. So he's, that was his introduction or his entree to Donald Trump. And their relationship had to do with this whole birther conspiracy regarding um, President Obama. But Jerome Corsi was given a plea deal by Robert Mueller and he turned it down. And he said, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm not going to be forced to basically admit that I lied. I just got really confused, just like Roger Stone's gotten confused a few times. And so Jerome Corsi released the um, prospective plea that he had with Robert Mueller. And it basically was lying to the federal government, which seems to be the, um, the trap for a lot of people these days. But again, it can't really be a perjury trap. Just as a footnote, I spoke to Roger Stone last week, Thursday, and I asked him about the Michael Cohen deal and all this other stuff. And he's like, oh, it's a perjury trap. And, you know, that whole concept, how can it be a perjury trap if you're telling the truth? But anyway, so Jerome Corsi said, I'm rejecting this plea deal. Oh, and hey, by the way, I have hired a man by the name of Larry Clayman, who has been defeated in court more times than I think that um, anyone can count, to sue. And that's what he's done. He filed this lawsuit where he's basically now accused Robert Mueller and his team of treason against the United States in an attempted coup d'etat against Donald Trump. That's literally where that's gone. And he filed it today in federal court. That's amazing. By the way, Larry Clayman, I just I have to offer this up because I know you guys will be entertained by this. I have actually run afoul of Larry Clayman because when I was in the Clinton administration, um, 
uh, I worked as uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce and then later as Acting Undersecretary of Commerce. And they were going after the Commerce Department on all sorts of things because Ron Brown, the former head of the DNC, was running the Commerce Department. And there were they were saying that people were sort of given – this was a kinder, innocent time where the big scandal was that maybe a donor was given a seat on a business mission – um, uh, uh, to another, uh, you know, b- b- trade mission, uh, because they were donors and they were looking into this as a as a high crime. Um, when think about that, but I didn't have anything to do with that. But I was in the commerce department, so I got um, uh, subpoenaed. I had to go and de- get deposed by them, um, and I went in and I didn't have a lawyer. They thought that was a little weird, um, and then they started asking me questions, and they said. Uh, well, so you've been a uh, close associate for the Clintons of, of, for a long time. And I said, no. And at the time, by the way, I'd never met a Clinton. And, and even though I was yeah. deputy undersecretary of government. And, and they, <laughs> said, and I, they said, no, you've, 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 you've been a close associate for many years. And I said, well, no. Um, and they said, well, you know, you're testifying here. Uh, and 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 you're under oath, and and uh, you could be uh, uh, penalized for perjury if you don't tell the truth. And I said, no, I've never met them before. I don't have any relationship with them. And then they, they he pulls out a folder very dramatically, and he says, Mr. Rothkopf, I have here a copy of the Little Rock, whatever bugle, and. Uh, uh, dated 1984. And uh, uh, I I want you to rethink your answer. Did you or did you not know the Clintons before? And I said, no, I didn't. And they said, well, right here it says you were in Little Rock in 1984. It even quotes you. And I said, "Uh, did you read the article? (laughs) And he said, (laughs) <laughs> and he sort of looked a little befuddled. Um, and I said, well, you should read the article because I was in Little Rock because I was directing a production of Ferenc Molnar's The Guardsman. And we were doing something with the University of Arizona with Little Rock. It starred Lucy Arness and Larry oh Luckett. And, uh, and uh, I knew you would appreciate this, Emily. And, I'm, like, I'm and, dying. And he and, and Clayman sort of looked down, and he was like, uh, "Oh, all right. Well, moving on." Um, Typical so, Clayman. Yeah, I mean, it was so ridiculous and spurious, and I I think probably I should have been indicted for some of my work as a director, um, but mostly in that case, <laughs> for it's if you if there is a crime against mediocrity. Um, but 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 you know, Rosa, as I as I listen to all of this stuff, um, you know, you get the, the, this question of there are people suing Robert Mueller for being a, a traitor. You've got the you know we're we're in some kind of a national crisis over what public service means, and I think part of the reason that Trump got elected is a lot of his base thinks. Politicians are corrupt. They're all corrupt. And so is he. But so what? Yeah, no, I, I, I yep. think that that's I think that that's right. I think there's a tremendous amount of, of cynicism. I think that a lot of the 
what what sort of passes for support for Donald Trump really comes out of more a sort of despair, uh, you know, the, the, a, a kind of nothing matters, nothing makes any difference. And and Trump is just, you know, I, I very much think that in the election of 2016, a vote for Trump for many people was not a vote for Trump per se. It was just a vote of, you know, fuck them. Uh, let's just let's just lob this cannonball into the middle of everything and see what happens. Um, and and I, I I do think you know I think this is something where Steve Walt, who's been on our podcast before, basically has it right. I think there's a profound failure of of the elites uh, in both parties in this country, um, and you know a failure to look out for much of the rest of America, a failure to think about the importance of actually listening to people in the rest of America. And I don't just mean that sort of fabled white working class, which which I think is the least of it. You know, I, th- I think this this also goes to talking to middle class Americans, to African-Americans, to Asian-Americans, to Latino-Americans. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that that not just amongst those who voted cast a what was really in some ways a protest vote for Trump, but also for many of the voters who didn't vote, who just stayed home. Uh, you know, it was out of a sense of deep hopelessness of nothing's going to change. Why bother? And and that, that, I think, is the, you know, the single biggest challenge facing facing all of us, the good guys, if you will, uh, you know, as we move into 2020, you know, that, that we, we saw higher than typical voter turnout in the midterm elections. But but it's still it's not going to be enough, particularly given the way, you know, gerrymandering has sort of rigged uh, electoral results and the, the sort of overcoming the structural problems created by our electoral college system and our two senators per state system. You know, the only way we're going to get back on track is if we could get really massive voter turnout to to overcome those things in 2020. Yeah, you know, another dimension of this, though, is that if you believe that the whole system is corrupt, um, then, you know, no no rules apply. And uh, one of the way, you know, the the, the most pernicious elements of this sold by the the Trumpists and and people like Clayman who are out there saying, you know, Mueller is corrupt, even though you know, I can't think of anybody further, you know, more above reproach, um, is is that you start seeing the parts of the system that are actually supposed to be apolitical as being political or as, as being politicizable um, uh, because you assume everybody has a political agenda. Uh, and this has led to the politicization, not just of the Department of Justice uh, or the battle the president has had recently with the chief justice of the Supreme Court about <laughs> whether whether you know the justices are Democrats or Republicans, but also Emily, you know, with with things like the the view that the the intelligence community yes, should yeah. play a political role, right? It's um, it, I, 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 I yeah, yeah sorry. sorry go on. No, I was just saying, it's, it's, it's interesting because I get that all the time, time either, either angry, angry tweets, tweets or people, people asking me about, about it. And, and they're saying, oh, they, they, you know, the intelligence community, CIA, CIA, FBI, they definitely, they definitely have a bias. Have a bias. Everybody, Everybody who works at the agency or works at the, the Bureau, we're all, we're all humans, humans, so of course we have opinions. But having worked there, I can say with 100% certainty, I've never worked with a bunch of people who are more dedicated to the mission and a loyalty, and they check their politics at the door. It is such a fact-based organization where emotion 
opinion, opinion kind of goes, goes out, out the door and you're and just you're relying, relying on facts. So, so the idea that people, that people are working on some kind of deep state, state secret agenda, agenda is, so is so laughable and it's also just so highly, highly insulting to the women and men who have worked there for decades and decades. You know, I have friends who worked there, you know, 30 years who now say, you know, now they want to leave because of Trump. But who have who worked, worked through, through every, every single administration, administration because, because it's, it's not, not about the president, per se, it's, it's really about, about the country and it's about the oath that they take to the country, to the country and to the service that they're, that they're doing. And, it's, and it's, to me, that's, that's the real crime right now. We're in a time, where, time people where people are actually doubting the integrity of the FBI. I get it with the CIA because of just the mystique that the CIA has, for better or for worse. But the FBI, that you're also seeing that amongst GOP voters, that they're doubting you know, you know, the integrity, the integrity of, this of this organization, organization that, that, you know, before, you know, before now, now never, never had, had that. So I, you know, you may think this is, this sounds a little bit all over the place, but I actually think it connects back Ed, um, to um, George H.W. Bush, because George H.W. Bush didn't get along that well with Ronald Reagan because Ronald Reagan was owned more by the hard right. And because Reagan was much more of a populist and because he took uh, undertook a number of things that undercut the way the system was supposed to work, Iran-Contra, um, but also did some other things which we are now paying the price for, like work to eliminate the fairness doctrine um, so that, uh, you know, which set the stage ultimately for the rise of Fox News. He also helped fast track, by the way, Rupert Murdoch's citizenship so he could buy the largest broadcast network in the country at the time. Um, and uh, by the way, if you really if you really want to entertain yourself with how circular this is, go back to um, you know uh, read about the, the you know the early days of those campaigns and how young Roger Stone went to young Donald Trump and aging Roy Cohn to help the Reagan campaign, which Stone was running in New York State, and you, Trump helped Stone find Reagan campaign headquarters uh, next to the 21 Club downtown in Manhattan. I mean, in other words, this is all caught up in, in this turning point, which actually was Reagan, and that Bush is the outlier of all presidents since then, because in some ways he was the most... Uh, a, a vestige of the way the system used to work, uh, and that around the time of Bush's one-term presidency, you also saw the rise of Newt Gingrich, the, the extreme hard right, uh, as a continuation of, of Reagan, which has led us to where we are today. And so, you know, Bush, Bush is not the, you know, sort of the last decent man, uh, but he's also a symbol of a turning point in American history that has now soured everything. Yeah, no, I, I've um, always had mixed feelings about Reagan. And I think, you know, with the rise of Trump, um, people who might have had a more um, uh, nuanced view about Reagan in the past have tended to sort of contrast Trump with Reagan. Um, but I think Reagan's, you know, role in, in history is complex, but uh, that Trump is very much... Uh, actually a natural product of the party um, that Reagan ran and the direction in which he took it. Uh, I think Reagan, you know, was was a sunnier character. Morning in America might be his epitaph and evening in America might be Trump's, but um, they're talking about the same day. Um, and I think that 
the um, racial uh, dog whistles that Reagan used in the 1980 campaign um, flowed directly um, from some of the work that Nixon had done with the uh, uh, Southern majority um, following the civil rights um, um, uh, legislation of the 1960s. You remember LGJ, LBJ turning to his speechwriter and saying, we've lost the South for a generation. Well, it's, it's you know, closer to two generations um, now. And so I do think that, you know, if you look at Reagan's legacy, if you look at how he used um, um, uh, covert appeals to race, implicit appeals to race, um, to uh, uh, build um, the sort of new, more conservative majority, then clearly Gingrich is, is, is a child of Reagan, and he's very much a father of Trump. Um, so the Bush's nemesis uh, was probably Pat Buchanan. I think Pat Buchanan was the man who finished Bush off. And what made Bush so out of touch um, with the Republican Party is that, uh, of, of, of even back then, was that he was a patrician. Um, he did believe that you should take political hits in order to do the right thing. He, he broke the um, read my lips, no new taxes pledge, because he believed that a fiscally responsible budget deal, a bipartisan budget deal, was in the national interest. Um, so he, he, he took a political hit very consciously um, that probably helped give rise to the sort of pitchfork rebellion against him, helped give rise to Ross Perot, and helped um, bring about the end of his presidency after one term. And unfortunately, the lesson from that um, is that you don't take a hit um, for the team, for the national interest, that you will not be rewarded in this lifetime um, for acting um, in that way. And that, that old phrase, I can never, you know, being a B-movie, um, really quite sort of um, lowbrow cultural aficionado, um, the, the line from um, the senator in, in Gladiator, I might not be of the people, but I am for the people, you know, is, is, not, what, is not what gets you re-elected. But I, I think, I mean, I think you're you're still you're being too nice to to George H. W. Bush, and and it is you know it is absolutely true that if when the point of comparison is Donald Trump, that Bush looks like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, uh, Nelson Mandela, <laughs> Martin Luther King rolled into one, maybe with a touch of Mother Teresa, um, but you know as 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 we were saying earlier, you know, let's not forget uh, many of the self-interested acts. Uh, there's a good piece by David Greenberg, friend of Deep State Radio in, in Politico a couple days ago on Bush's many self-interested acts, uh, ranging from, um, uh, as uh, I think David already mentioned, the uh, uh, Willie Horton business uh, in his campaign against Michael Dukakis, which was not exactly a, a uh, sacrifice of self-interest on for principles, very much the other way around. There was his pardoning of all the Iran-Contra defendants, uh, Bob McFarlane, Elliot Abrams, Casper Weinberger, which was absolutely self-interested. It was to protect, protect himself uh, from further investigation because he was up, up to his ears uh, in that particular scandal. Um, you know, there was his uh, total, total about face on supply side economics for purely self-interested political purposes. So I'm not I'm not ready to uh, hand a halo to to uh, H uh, H.W. here. Well, I don't th I don't think you should. But, you know, on the other hand, um, 
as I look at all of this and and I see that, you know, we've that we based on what we've been saying, we've been working for 30 years, 35 years to get to where we are today via Reagan and the people around him and Buchanan and Gingrich and the Tea Party and Sarah Palin and, you know, on into Trump land um, and, you know, Mitch McConnell and some of the lowlights that exist in, the, in this world now. Um, and yet it brings me back to a point, Katie, and the point is it's something we brought up, I think, on the, the first podcast of this week. But the, 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 the point is um, uh, Americans are not rioting in the streets, um, even though the majority of Americans think the president uh, is doing a lousy job, and even though the majority of Americans are worried about what he did with 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 this, um, and I and I think that this may be because to some extent Americans still retain faith in the fact that the system will work, that Mueller mm-hmm. will prevail, that the Supreme Court will do what it has to do with Kavanaugh on it or without, because of guys like John Roberts, who again has got a mixed record, but seems to be willing to stand up for certain key principles. Um, and, and you know, you're, you're an attorney and you're in the system. But, I, you know, I don't think we've reached the point where Americans feel the system has failed. And in many respects, I think we're at a point where this, we feel the judiciary system is going to save us from the other parts. Well, I think it kind of cuts both ways because – As somebody who's deep in the trenches on a daily basis, um, I know that I haven't given up hope or faith, and I've seen about as ugly as it can get, both not only in the criminal arena, but the civil arena. I do think for the very first time in decades, we have an exceptional politicization of the judicial system. And I'm not talking just the recent Brett Kavanaugh hearings, confirmation hearings vis-a-vis SCOTUS. I'm talking more along the lines of... There are people who don't ride in the streets because they do believe that that white knight um, is is Robert Mueller and that there is still credibility and dignity and integrity in agencies like the FBI, the Office of Special Counsel, et cetera. And they do believe that one day soon, fingers crossed, um, sooner than later, that there will be all of the answers to all the questions we've been pining over for the last few months. But I also think that on the far end of the spectrum, you have people that are also not rioting in the streets because they do believe that Donald Trump has successfully exposed um, some type of nefarious element that has always existed in our judiciary, in our criminal justice system, in our agencies, both federal and state. And so they think that he's the savior. They think Donald Trump is the guy that is peeled, you know, back, um, peeled the scales from the scales have fallen from their eyes. And now they see that their suspicions all of these years are, are correct, that there is this insane kind of um, Jerome Corsi-esque Mueller conspiracy going on where people are trying to um, unseat and, and, and get rid of people as, quote, amazing as Donald Trump. And so I think that never the twain shall meet, obviously. And I think that that's the reason why you have serious people digging in their heels and holding out, holding out for one thing or another, because we all know 
that depending upon the outcome of the Mueller investigation, Mueller could deliver any Donald Trump's head on a platter um, with uncontroverted evidence of his complicit um, activity, knowledge, et cetera. And there's going to be a section of the American public that's going to say that it's still fake, that it's fake news, that it's not real. They're going to say that it was all, you know, trumped up, no pun intended, charges against the president of the United States. And so I think that sadly, again, for the first time in really, really first time in decades, you're seeing just an absurd polarization of the judicial system, then people are either going to believe um, that truth and the American way will prevail, or they're going to think that we've all been duped this entire time and whatever the results are of any type of trial or sentencing or guilty plea or indictment, that it's just all fake news. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep struggling for this shred of optimism here. Corey's not with us this week. She'll be back next week. And so I'm trying to fit this tiara of optimism on my head. It doesn't fit very well. But, 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 but Emily, you know, I, do, I, I think the other thing in which people ultimately may have some faith is what Ed mentioned earlier, which is election. You know, it's, it's like we've got, you know, t- you know, two ways to save ourselves from further slide in this direction. One is the judiciary system working, uh, but the election's produced a shift in the House, and now the House is going to behave in a different way. But there's 2020 is now two year, less than two years away. And, and we're going to be in the midst of that real damn soon, which is a little horrifying. And I did see that Bernie is like, OK, I'm ready to go. Oh. And I was like, oh, no. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. That was sort of uh, no. what I said. <laughs> Make it stop. Yeah. yeah. No, if you're a Bernie bro and you're listening to this podcast, Find another podcast because this is going to be a real uncomfortable place for you, I think. Um, uh, because I, you know, to me, the Bernies of this world reduce the chances that the Democrats can actually win, and we've seen how that works. But, but there is, I, I have no issue with Bernie's politics, I have an issue with the same old faces, and and with you can choose which word you want to put your emphasis on there. Um, I would, I would also be very happy. If Hillary Clinton runs again, uh, if Joe Biden runs, right. uh, I would add them to the list. I am I am with you 100 percent. I am with you 100 percent. As I've said before, I think I said it on the podcast, but I said before, I've reached a, a disturbing age. I used to feel real uncomfortable with the idea of a president of the United States being younger than me. And I have now reached the age where I'm real uncomfortable with the idea of a president being older than me. Um, and I am substantially younger than all those people that you mentioned, because I think we need we, we need a change. But most of the people who are running are younger and they they do represent a change. And, you know, I listened to the, 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 your little secret uh, uh, dreams that you talk about, you know, on, in your Twitter account and, and now on the podcast, Emily. And. And it sounds to me like you may have some faith in that system, too. I do. I was the midterms gave me faith. I was like horribly terrified. I also take credit for more people voting because I think I personally harassed everyone into getting out and voting. But it gave me some faith. And I think if we see new blood, new faces, I think that's going to instill some power and some faith and motivation to get out there and we'll 
you know, restore everything that we've lost over the past two, three years where everything just seemed to go down that, you know, shithole. And I think, I think midterms did that. I mean, as a woman, it absolutely did that for me to see so many women now running and getting, getting elected. To me, I was, I was nervous about that to see how people would react. And so I am, I'll borrow the tiara just for a little bit because I also like to accessorize, but I do think I do have some optimism and I think there's, there's reason to have that. Ed, what about you? Reasons for optimism. Do you have any? Uh, I just want to see you. I just want to see you in the tiara of optimism. I want to see how that fits on you. Can can I wear a cravat of optimism? I just don't think I'd, (laughs) I wouldn't look very fetching in a tiara. No, 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 me. Um, well, I, 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 um, I'm, I'm going to have to take a rain check on the the, opt- the quest for optimism. Uh, I, I could produce, you know, some time-honored homilies, but I, I, I don't think I'd, I'd rather wait and see what happens. The, 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 the optimistic thing I will say is, lots of things are possible. That spectrum contains positive outcomes as well as very dark ones. Um, but I don't right now. I don't right now see see things that are going to transform the mess that we're in, um, uh, and I just see possibilities. Well, that's you know pretty depressing, um, and we're running out of time here. And when things get dark and we're running out of time, I always turn to Rosa to really put a fine point on our depression. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, no, but, no. But, I, I, but, but I share Ed's um, sense that that on the spectrum of possibilities, there are good things as well as catastrophically awful things. Um, yeah, that's true. I, I want to turn the subject in the last thirty seconds here, completely different direction. I've really enjoyed your attacks, Rosa, on Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In, and I saw that Michelle. Why, thank you, Bob- David. I, and I saw Michelle Obama had joined you in those attacks. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to give you 30 seconds to talk about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's excited. To, it's exciting to have Michelle Obama joining me in the, in the, I hate Sheryl Sandberg uh, corner uh, and, and cursing away merrily. Um, I, I think that, I think that Sheryl uh, Sandberg has been revealed over time. <laughs> as not exactly the role model uh, a woman ought to have for a number of reasons, some of which have to do with gender gender politics and some of which just have to do with uh, uh, generally disgusting and unethical behavior by Facebook. Um, so I hope that this will this will lead lead all those women who are who are you know going out and buying lean in and joining these little lean in circles that, uh, they need to uh, toss that book and and go read a uh, room of one's own instead. <laughs> hey, you know, I just it gives me one idea here as we wrap up, uh, Emily. Yes. Don't you have on it? Uh, don't you have on an upcoming episode? Um, my uh, friend Nell Scoville. I do. I'm talking to her Wednesday. Do you do do you know who co-wrote Lean In? Um, I. I don't remember. I at one point did know, but now I don't anymore because the brain well, cells have gone away. 
you, they apparently not functioning very well because you could have. That was a pretty leading question. Um, Nell Scoville. Well, I was going to oh, take. A, uh, I was going to guess Nell Scoville, but that that <laughs> that seemed too easy. <laughs> Uh, but I was thinking maybe you and Emily should talk and maybe you could join her for a few minutes and have a little cage match with Nell. It would be so entertaining. Oh, God, no. I, no. Because when I like have gone, to, I've gone after Cheryl Sandberg a few times and I and I get these emails, some very thoughtful emails from Nell uh, explaining why it's unfair for me to go after Cheryl Sandberg in one case or another. Um, well, it's just a, it's just a thought. But for those of you who want to hear the other side of this, uh, listen to um, uh, uh, a- Emily's podcast, Washington for Beautiful People, um, where you know you'll go because you think Nell Scoville is a great comedy writer who wrote a great book on comedy writing, and then you can stay for some lean-in debate. Um, uh, in any event, you know there's lots. Uh, I, I think Rosa. I think Rosa should write a book entitled "Recline, Ladies." I think Rosa wrote an article for a publication which shall not be named. It was pretty close to that. It was pretty uh, good. I reread it. Yeah, no, it was very. It was very good. And the publication is foreign policy. I'm just joking around. But you should go. You should go and and read it. Kudos, Rosa. <laughs> I'm I'm reclining hey, as we you, speak. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys know that it's 50 years from the release of Nine of the Living Dead? And I was just—it just reminded me of Donald Trump for a second there, just in the administration. That's just, that has <laughs> got to be significant. There, I mean, could, could we, how could we ignore that that connection? I just, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think we talk all about Bush, and we're missing the point because it's really Night of the Living Dead. That it's mm. it's a much better. It's a it's a much better historical reference. Um, well, folks, your assignment is to go and see Night of the Living Dead. Uh, by the way, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody last night. I really liked it for for what it's worth. I know it's a controversial controversial subject out there, but I enjoyed it. Um, in any event, I also liked Widows. By the way, a week ago, very good. Um, in any event, if you've got time to go to the movies, go to see the movies. But uh, tune in to Emily's show, um, yeah. Washington for Beautiful People. Tune in to upcoming episodes of Deep State Radio. Tune in to National Security Magazine, which will be later this week with Jake Sullivan. Uh, read our daily briefs. Uh, read our weekly brief on text on tech, um, and uh, and come back. You know, next week for Deep State Radio, uh, where I think it may be the first week in a while where we're going to actually have the old gang of uh, Corey and David and, and uh, Ed and Rosa all together. Yay! Uh, for, yeah, kind of a Christmas party, holiday festivities. <laughs> but um, just, we'll, we'll still be fundamentally alone. We will. We'll each be together and yet alone. It's so <laughs> poignant. Um, and uh, let everybody uh, really uh, enjoy the rest of your Hanukkah. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Deep State nerds everywhere. Go to deepstateradionetwork.com for more. Or follow us at Deep State Radio on Twitter or follow any of us on Twitter. Um, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.